You love discounts. I love discounts. Right now, we here at VeloNews have a discount that you will love on our Active Pass and VeloNews Pass memberships. You can get 15% off both memberships by going to VeloNews.com forward slash Active Pass. You can get VeloNews Pass for $41.65 for the entire year or Active Pass for $84.15 for the entire year. Uh, you've heard me talk about these in the podcast before. Both get you access to the cool exclusive content on VeloNews.com, industry deals from some great brands, and a print subscription to VeloNews Magazine. Active Pass also gives you access to Roll Massive events, coaching advice, and a whole lot more. You can learn more by going to VeloNews.com forward slash Active Pass. And this discount goes through February 7th. So this is the final week, folks. If you want to get 15% off VeloNews Pass or Active Pass, go to VeloNews.com forward slash Active Pass. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Tuesday morning here. Home offices, Lafayette, Colorado. Yep, it's it's a busy Tuesday. You guessed it. It's a busy Tuesday. I'm juggling like 50 things at once, doing final proofs on the gravel slash adventure issue of print, uh, Village Print Magazine, which is going to be out soon. Really excited about that. Spinning stuff for the web, doing stuff for our, our Active Pass members, and of course, uh, the podcast as well. And um, as the, the tough part about this season and this year in 2021 is as I'm juggling all these assignments and all these short and long-term projects, like the 2021 cycling season continues to just change, radically change almost daily with pro races being called off or postponed, gravel races, mass participant races, all the events that we were um, – Planning for in 2021 being reshuffled due to COVID, which, you know, we all kind of saw coming. I think the big one uh, left to decide is the Olympics. But there's definitely a tinge of uh, March 2020 going on right now in the cycling space. And uh, we're going to talk about all of that on this episode of the podcast. Second half of the show, though, we are going to catch up with American phenom. I don't use that word lightly. Clara Hansinger who just got fourth place at the Cyclocross World Championships and fourth in the World Cup in her first full European campaign. I can't explain how utterly mind-blowing that is and how exciting it is to have Clara come in into her own in the European cross season just as uh, the old guard, Katie Compton and Katie Keogh, are you know announcing retirement, stepping away, and um, you know their, their time is coming to a close. It seems like American... Cross racing is in good hands with Clara Hansinger. Uh, before we get to Clara, though, we have Andrew Hood coming to us from the Man Cave. Andy, you have been following all of the stories around these race cancellations and all, all these Spanish races that we had such high hopes for, for all the World Tour riders starting their seasons off there. They are not happening. Uh, what's what's the last week been like for you in, you know, in planning your your travel and race coverage schedule? Yeah, it has been a little bit of a deja vu all over again, as uh, Yogi Berra once famously said. Uh, it's been kind of really a bummer around the old uh, hoodie household. You know, I was kind of looking forward to that that southern Spain late winter kind of uh, sunshine. You know, get down there with some sangria and uh, you know chase a few races and uh, kind of warm the bones. But uh, everything's one one race after another has been kind of uh, following the pattern of last year. Uh, but me, you know, it's not a surprise the conditions are. 
pretty bad here in Spain and and across uh, France and in southern southern Europe is pretty bad right now. A lot of concern about just what's going on. But the uh, Vuelta a Maria, which is a one-day race, is still on the calendar here in Spain, February 14th, I believe the date is on that one, kind of a sprinter's race. But it's a big blow for the teams. They were kind of planning this whole kind of Spanish racing block from the Mallorca Challenge in late January all the way through the Agave Ruta del Sol, which was going to give them a good month of racing before going to the first World Tour races. But that's all off the uh, off the calendar, unfortunately. So I got a couple questions for you, Andy. The first is, uh, I sent you down to Ruta del Sol a couple years ago, and you know some of that area around Murcia and Granada, and it's totally beautiful. It's great, but um, I remember when I traveled there, and I, you know, as an American, when you go down there for the first time, you're blown away by the culture and the history and the food and the flamenco and all these different things, and you kind of forget that eh, it's just like any other place where people have their. Um, uh, well, you know, people people have thoughts on the people who live down there. And I remember going there with some friends of ours from Barcelona, and they and one of the guys was Spanish, and he's just like, uh, uh, these rednecks. Basically, you know, we're in these small towns, and and my wife and I are just blown away by how quaint and how cute and historic. Oh, there's a Moorish water wheel, and oh, look at these arts and crafts. And this guy was just like, oh my god, we are surrounded by rednecks here like if you could understand the like accent of these spanish people you would be like you know we are in in the backwaters of spain i so do you look you know down your nose do you thumb as a northern spanish a northern american spaniard are you like oh oh i have to go to you know backwater spain to cover these races or are you still enthralled by you know the culture and the tapas and the moorish water wheels and stuff yeah, there there is some of that stuff. I, I, for me personally, I really enjoy going down to that part of Spain because it is quite different. I mean, it's quite a distinctive culture down there, and the way they speak, yeah, you know, it's just mind boggling. They kind of chop letters off the end of words and and speak as if like it's a machine gun cadence. So, and they're also very funny people down there. Uh, not to generalize, but but uh, I, I personally love going down to Andalusia. We all we often go down to uh, the Cadiz, the coast, the beaches down between Tarifa and Cadiz which are some of the best beaches in Europe. And there's a lot of these little villages that just have a great scene down there, kind of a windsurf, kind of, uh, you know, kind of a clash between hippies and uh, and some of the old school kind of Spaniards have been living there for generations. But people are friendly. The food's great. You know, the history of the landscape's just spectacular. It's a great place to have a bike race, actually, uh, this time of year. So it's, it's quite a shame that uh, those races are off the calendar because, you know, these little races, you know, they've been overshadowed over these, you know, last – decade or so you know you'd see all these these bigger races elbowing into that space you know the, the tour down under now is the first world tour race and you got uae in oman and and what used to be uh qatar was there now the saudi arabia race and you have colombia and uh san juan and a lot of those races pay money to the teams to show up so uh this year there was a lot of ex- expectation that if those the gave down in portugal which is just a fabulous part of uh, Portugal there on the Algarve coast, all these Spanish races and the races that are still on the calendar, thankfully, in France, they were going to see kind of this revival because they really have been struggling the last, I'd say, 10 years or more. Um, but uh, unfortunately for Spain, it's not going to happen or the Algarve. Well, and it sounds like there's another element to this, which is, you know, hey, COVID numbers are bad. So the race directors are delaying or postponing and having this mindset of, hey, we're just going to run it 
later in the season, you know, hey, you know, uh, Valenciana, Ruta del Sol, we'll, we'll postpone it till when it's safer, you know, maybe like uh, April, May, June, or July. And uh, David Lepartient, president of the UCI, came out in an interview with the French newspaper this week and basically said, eh, I don't know if that's going to happen, guys. Like, that's sort of going up against, you know, your Dauphinés and Tour de France's and the heart of the World Tour racing season. So what do you think is going to happen to these events for 2021? I mean, do you believe that at some point they're just going to be off or are they going to try and fit themselves into this busy competition calendar? Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting puzzle again for the ECI. I mean, last year when the whole calendar came to a complete stop and then they put everyone pulled everyone together at this big stakeholders meetings and, and kind of got everything rescheduled, um, you know, that was kind of just rewriting the whole script from zero. Whereas this, it's like, okay, there's a few races canceled, a few other races are staying on the calendar. So La Patiente in this interview with uh, Direct Velo, French website, uh, was saying that, uh, you know, really right now you have to wait and see how what happens in the next couple of weeks, next couple of months, because the general feeling is they're hopeful that the World Tour calendar will remain relatively unscathed because they believe, you know, the UAE is next, uh, mid-February. Then it goes into uh, Paris. Strada Bianchi, Terreno, San Remo, and up to the Classics. And they're hoping that all those races can stay on the calendar and they can be contested, again, with this race bubble. Um, sign on by the local health authorities, of course, is the major issue. Um, but, you know, a lot of these local communities want to have the race because, uh, you know, the teams are there. They're bringing in people to fill up the hotels. And I tell you, man, the, the hotel industry, a lot of these resort towns, even if they can get – one night or maybe, you know, a couple of nights for the, uh, a race to fill up some hotel rooms, that's going to help pay some bills. So I know there is institutional support locally to have these races being held. And the good thing is, you know, last year racing kind of proved that with this race bubble behind closed doors, no fans, no media, you have the race, televise it and everyone can go home happy. And I think that's what they're trying to do with these with this first round of these spring races. But so what we're hearing right now is that the Belgians are saying the opening weekend uh, at Newsblad and Kern Brussels Kern that they're good to go, as well as the spring classics. They might be again this kind of behind closed doors concept, no fans, so no beer drinking, no uh, rowdy parties in the side of the Tour ah. of Flanders this year. But hey, man, having the race is better than nothing. Well, and. The reshuffling of this early, early schedule now has placed extra importance on a hand, the handful of races that are going off. So like you said, we have UAE Tour going off here in a couple of weeks. But we have uh, some French races coming up, the Drome and Fawn Ardèche Classics, and also the Etoile de Brassage, a stage race that normally totally flies under the radar. And now if you look at the start list, you have three of the past five Tour de France winners and, you know, stars of the Belgian classics and stars of the one week stage races. I mean, I'm looking at this start list here and it's just like every big name cyclist in the world tour is now descending on this small little French race, which I'm sure they, you know, the, the promoters of this race are just rubbing their hands with glee. Um, what can you say about, yeah, like the the wave of the magic wand and what impact it may have on the Etoile de Brassages and like Drome Ardèche classics out there? Yeah, it'll be huge for these races. I mean, these races, remember, actually were, were contested last year before everything shut down. I was looking at the start list last year. They had seven World Tour teams actually raced. Pretty good pretty good selection uh, because, you know, some teams do like to race in these old traditional races. Uh, but, you know, this year, 10 World Tour teams 
as you mentioned, the Tour de France winners, you got uh, Kiewikowski, Peterson, former world champions, Philippe, Philippe Ogana. Uh, there's a time trial stage at the end of the Bersege. And uh, just the whole week, the whole month, you know, then we have uh, Tour de la Provence, the old Harvard, these one days in the Ardèche. Uh, so there's going to be plenty of racing to kind of keep the teams happy down there. It's going to be a boon for them. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see kind of just, who, you know, who has the legs. I mean, it's going to be interesting to come into this block of racing because it's been the off season, but riders have been able to train. You know, they haven't, haven't come off out of these like big lockdown periods like last year when they came out of uh, uh, three months of just sitting inside of, a, of their apartments. So I think it's going to be a pretty exciting racing. I think riders would be pretty excited to race. There was a good quote from uh, Mads Peterson basically saying, look, considering the circumstances and how these races are getting dropped, we're, you know, we're racing to win every race we get a chance to toe up to the line because we don't know if it's going to be our last race for a long time. Versage looking like two flat stages, two kind of hilly stages in an ITT. So sorry, no big mountains there, but um, you know, good way to get uh, some racing in the legs. I'm really excited for the Drome and Ardesh Classics. You know, these are races that listeners may have never heard of or not know too much about, but uh, our very own James Start just uh, wrote a piece for the magazine about these two races and why they are like the bike racers races. You know, there are these hilly classics down there in the Rhone River Valley, really hilly courses. When you look at the finish, there's never a sprint. It's always like ones and twos and the hills and the winds and the rain and the, you know, breaks up the peloton and it tends to be very aggressive racing. So if you're looking for some races to follow, I would recommend those. But then we get into, you know, your UAE tours with your uh, uphill finish to Jebel Jais and, then uh, the season gets off. Um, I we will not be at UAE tour. I believe they're having that race uh, with no um, journalists. So unfortunately, Jim Cotton will not be calling in from the basement of a hotel uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. That's crazy to think about. That was a year ago. You know, for the bike racing world, that was like the big uh, COVID nineteen moment. Was UAE tour getting stopped early and the absolute creme de la creme of the international cycling press being locked for days inside of this hotel, um, not knowing what's going to happen. I remember our former colleague, Gregor Brown, was doing all these like Zoom call videos where he just like looked really bored and unwashed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do remember actually I was at the uh, Track Worlds last year in Berlin and I believe it was yeah, well, Gregor or someone on Twitter, you know, just put out there, we are in lockdown at the UAE tour. And word spread there like wildfire across the Berlin uh, track worlds. And it was funny. I remember uh, Michael Morkoff had flown in from the UAE tour. And he was racing, of course, with Quickstep at uh, the UAE tour coming into the track worlds because he races the Madison with the Danish national team. And they had to put him in isolation. They tried to give him a test. I'm not quite sure if they had the COVID test already. But they gave him the green light to race. And uh, they did quite well. I think they won, actually, if I recall. And um, but I remember those were the first real hints that uh, hmm, this is not just like uh, something happening in Africa or some corner of Asia. No, when you follow the stories and look back on the stories from that um, that time, like people didn't even know back then it was like wear a mask, like mask wearing, which is so part of our lives now, wasn't even an agreed upon way to deal with a virus or social distancing or any of that stuff. You know, I've been thinking a lot about that as I've been reporting on here in North America, all of the springtime events are also being postponed or called off. And yeah, there's pro races like the Tour of the Gila and some of the big pro road races, but really it's about the big mass participant events, like the big gravel races that in the spring are now postponing or, you know, going off like uh, Belgian Waffle Ride has delayed 
delayed its San Diego race from May back to late July. It has uh, rescheduled its um, event in North Carolina as well. Rock Cobbler is pushing back. Grasshopper Series, Mid-South, formerly at Land Run 100. Um, they just called the whole thing off and just had like a race from home event. And that was the event last year that happened right as COVID was like blowing across the country. And the promoter was placed in this strange position of, do you go forward with it? Do you not? There's this pandemic that's like evolving very quickly, but people are already in town. And, you know, I've had conversations with him where he's just like, if it had been a day later, I probably would have called it off. We just didn't know. But like, people didn't even know at that time, to like wear a mask, you know, it was like, uh, okay, don't travel and watch what you touch and hand sanitizer. But some of the really basic elements of, of modern life today, we just, uh, we just didn't know about. Yeah, and you wonder, Fred, you have a better finger on the pulse than I do over there in, in, in the West. You know, I wonder how these races are going to bounce back, uh, you know, because it looks like 2021 might be kind of a similar wash as last year for these, you know, big gravel races, that, which really were taken off, you know, 2018, 19, you know, it was becoming this huge scene. You know, you kind of get the feeling, is it going to like, will it just kind of snuff it out before it got a chance to take off or will it come back? even bigger than before because everyone's just like pent up the race. What's your take on that? I've been asking that question to everybody. What impact does this have on gravel's trajectory? You know, 2016 through 2019, gravel is on this rocket ship to the moon every year, gaining momentum, more races, selling out pros, brands, sponsors, media attention, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there are definitely people in the camp of like, you know what? Um, there's so much pent up aggression and pent up demand because people are now having one year, two year off that like we think our events are just going to sell out and like we're going to have waiting lists because everyone can't wait to get into it. And that's the that's the glass, glass is half full. The glass is half empty, though, is definitely something that I haven't just heard from gravel promoters, but also like promoters of marathon races and just all, you know, any any event that gets people together, concert promoters, I'm a friend who works in the concert business. And there's this feeling like, you know, people are going to be hesitant to get back in huge crowds of people, whether it's traveling, whether it's concerts, like a certain percentage of the population is going to look at those big things and say, you know, I don't know if I want to dive right back into it. Maybe I want to give it a little time. Or they're like, you know, my lifestyle over the last year and a half has been so changed and adjusted that I don't really have a stomach for that type of thing. And in cycling, there's also this thought of like, you know, people have found the ability to challenge themselves elsewhere with Strava, fastest no challenge, time challenges, personal stuff, and the, the, the desire to be in a peloton with 4,000 people and a start line with 4,000 other people and in an expo and all the traveling and stuff like that might be a, too big of a, a barrier for people to sign up for en masse. And if that's the case, that could have a big impact on the gravel racing scene. I tend to think it's somewhere in the middle. Probably it'll kind of cancel each other out. But I don't think I, – I personally don't think – gravel is going to get right back on the rocket ship to the moon that it was on before. I do think that some races will go away. And I think some races are going to go away just because of the fact that like, you know, these big pro races, they're underwritten by sponsors and local governments and media. But these gravel races are just, they're entry fees. And, you know, what what a lot of these gravel races have been doing is sort of they do full refunds or they do deferments with the payments. Um but, you know, it's a business at the end of the day. I mean, Andy, how long can you live without a paycheck? Like, <laughs> <laughs> let's, 
Let's hope we never have to find out. <laughs> yeah. And so with these, a lot of these gravel races, these gravel promoters, they are effectively going without a paycheck for this year and maybe this year and next year. And so, you know, if they had a little bit saved up or if they're refunding you at 50% or if they're like deferring, but not refunding everyone, like those are economic practices that are geared at uh, the survival of the event. I think noticeably the biggest one um, from a reputation standpoint, that is Unbound Gravel. Yes, the race formerly known as DK, formerly known as Dirty Kanza. They are, they're in a real tough position. Because in all these people I've been talking to, they say, well, you know, probably the late summer, mid to late summer into early fall is a safe timeline for vaccine rollout. The winter into the early spring is definitely not a safe timeline. And then there's this no man's land in between kind of like late May, June into like through July. That's just sort of like, well, we're just going to have to see, you know, if the vaccine rollout is ahead of schedule, if it's delayed, if regional local infection rates go down, if they surge, like that is going to determine the outcome for those events. And of course, Unbound is June 5th, right in the middle of it. So they right now are going forward, but... It all depends on like if there's a surge in the community, I would think, um, or if just the public gets up in arms about it. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that with some of the European races itself, where it's just like depending on where they are in the schedule and what is going on regionally and hyper, hyper, hyper locally, that could determine the fate of some of these events. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch with the road race calendar as it evolves here in Europe, because you know, uh, with those with these races being canceled now, a lot of them are saying, "Oh yeah, I want to be postponed. We want to do it in, in May." And La Partiente was saying, the USAD president was saying, "Well, that's not going to be quite as easy as last year when we just kind of put all the cards in the table and started to re reshuffle the deck." Because now you might have, you know, there could be say Perinice and Sereno are all d canceled, delayed. You know, where do you put those races in later in the calendar if the Giro, the Tour, the Vuelta? And the Olympics are still on the calendar, so it's not going to be as easy as last year trying to reschedule all these all these races if the other races are still on their traditional dates. Mm. So I think it's going to be that's going to be the big difference between last year in terms of seeing what races are contested and which ones aren't. And also, you know, we're still hearing uh, different mixed messages on the Olympics. Uh, the official line still, I mean, they they keep hammering out now with the IOC and the Japanese officials saying we are holding the Olympics. But I still really, I mean, it's hard. It's too early to say. I think March will have a, a de definitive answer by March on the Olympics. Did you see that story of that uh, official down in uh, Florida who he publicly said, hey, Japan, Florida, we could we could totally host the Olympics. IOC, uh, if Japan doesn't work out, just uh, just let us know. What, what do you think about an Olympics in Florida? <laughs> well, you know, you can have a, a nice uh, time trial circuit around uh, Disney World, maybe, uh -huh. around like Cape Canaveral and then... Uh, no, no climbs in that road course. Now the um, the cold day high, highway overpass. I don't think is going to break up the peloton on that one. But I just love the Florida man wants Olympics in Florida storyline. Um, we, we're going to keep our eyes on that here at VeloNews.com. But I, I'm not going to be holding my breath for the 2021 Olympics to be held in like Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, during spring break, of course. <laughs> Uh, well, look, the season is going to continue to evolve and we're going to continue covering it here on VeloNews.com. Um, but we have some actual bike racing that we need to talk about before we get to our interview with Clara Hansinger. Of course, that is 
the cyclocross world championships held in the blowing sand of Ostend, Belgium. I love the Belgian coast, these coastal cities. And you see photos of them in the summer and like all the, the Belgians go up there and like sun themselves in the North Sea coast. And then in the winter, if you go there, I've been there even in the springtime. And it's just like, it's like 45 mile an hour offshore winds and freezing cold temperatures. And like, if you were to take your mitten off and leave your hand uncovered for 10 minutes, like your fingers would just break off and rainy. <laughs> it's just really sort of cold and miserable. But, but like, if you're Belgian, if you're, if you're Flemish, like that is just like vacation. That is your, that is your version of Calpe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was pretty good to see the, the, uh, world cup season really gain a lot of traction this year. I think, uh, you know, even like in the road calendar last year where it was all organized and kind of uh, trimmed down, like the whole less is more concept is quite, quite effective in racing. I've always been kind of like more races, the merrier, you know, it's there's five races in one day. That's five times as great a story, but actually having, you know, cause the cyclocross calendar usually is so jumbled up with the, so many world cups, so many supercross, all these different kind of events going on that you really, you kind of you know, lose track of really what's even going on. Whereas this year, you know, I think the World Cup was what seven, eight stops, and they had a couple of other events. So every race really mattered. And man, the build up going into the the Worlds was just fantastic. And then really the confirmation of Wout and Van Aert, Van Aert and Vanderpool, just once again, mano a mano. It's like, how great is it going to be to watch these guys race for the next five or 10 years? And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a great thing for cycling because it, you know, it's a new generation, new stars, new stories, and the way they race. So dynamic and so exciting. Yeah. And they were just, they're obviously just such on a different level. And the fact that these guys can race throughout the schedule, you know, I mean, here it is the end of January, beginning of February, and these guys are still going full gas and like obviously so much better than all these other talented Belgian and Dutch cyclists who focus entirely on cyclocross. And there it is, you know, Matthew and Wout just like at the head of the pack, blow by blow is a testament to just how good they are. And like in a couple of weeks, they're going to be doing Omloop Het Nusblad and going right into the classics. I mean, my question is always just like, where are you going to get your rest? But yeah, thrilling race in the men's race with uh, Wout getting a, an er, a bit of an early advantage, but had that flat tire. And, you know, I don't know if he would end up uh, have ended up winning that race anyway. I just watching it like Vanderpool looked a little bit smoother in some of those sections. I do think he was a better man on the day. And afterwards, Van Aert said he kind of lost focus and, you know, another second place for Van Aert. I mean, he's so strong and had such a great season. But something I think about is like, I mean, he was, wasn't he, he I believe he was second in road time trial. He was second in road worlds, uh, road race, second in cyclocross worlds, second, second in Flanders. Flanders. Yeah. So, I mean, great year, but uh, got to convert some of those things into wins. Um, yeah, you got a few wins there, though. The Dutch, though, holy cow, sweeping worlds, winning every single race. I forget, you know, of the... However many podium spots there were up for grabs, they grabbed like, you know, 70% of them or whatever. Uh, with Lucinda Brand winning the elite women's sweeping, you know, the Dutch swept the elite women's race. So once again, plucky the Netherlands, tiny little country up there. So good at cycling. Um, watching Lucinda Brand win reminded me of, um, you know, Lucinda Brand, friend of the podcast, Lucinda Brand. Her time on the podcast, and we connected on a call earlier this year. And um, her talking about how, 
you know, being a star in cyclocross and being able to have these individual ambitions means a lot to her because, you know, she races on the road full time and she, look, she has won big races on the road, two-time Dutch national road champion, but she herself told me that she considers herself a domestique. Hey, you know, my job is to close gaps, be there in the final, help my teammates win. Like if I get an opportunity, I'll go for it, but those opportunities don't come around very often and I'm fine with it. You know, I am a team player. And, and, and talking about how like, when, when you're a Dutch road racing cyclist at her level, I mean, in, for, in any other country, she'd be like the best of the best. And she's like, yeah, you know, I'm like the third or fourth best Dutch woman. Talked about it her first road worlds racing in the individual time trial. This was uh, Salzburg or no, um, Innsbruck. And she's like, I had the time trial in my life and I was uh, sixth place. You know, sixth place in the world. It's like, that's great. She's like, but I was the last place Dutch rider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the depth, the depth on uh, both sides, the men's and the women's is impressive for all those countries up there. I think it's just in their DNA, right? They start riding their bikes to school when they're four years old and, uh, and just, uh, it's always a headwind. It doesn't matter what time of day it is, man. You're riding against the wind. It was, you know, coming or going. Well, and when you're riding to those, um, you know, those wonderful seaside getaways up on the North Sea coast to go sun yourself in the 40 degree, uh, you know, Belgian or Dutch sunshine, you're riding directly into a headwind. And so that's got to be tough, too. Yeah, it was also, we have to also uh, kudos to the American crew there. Uh, you know, uh, Curtis White, I think 20th kind of racing almost as a privateer, really. Those guys were over there this whole season. Hansiger and then uh, you know the other Americans you know put a strong effort in, but it it's always such a Belgian Dutch kind of mafia that runs that whole cyclocross scene. It's pretty hard for anybody, even within the rest of Europe, to kind of break into that. An occasional French or a Swiss rider can do well, uh, but kudos to those the American crew that did a pretty pretty impressive showing really at, at the Worlds. Yeah, fourth place by Hansinger. I'm really excited to see her progress in the next few years. I mean, in the interview, she talked about how. You know, when she was coming up, she would look at the national or the international standings, and it was always like, you know, the Netherlands and Belgium, but then the US was right up there because of the strength of our women. And now, you know, the news coming out this season is that Katie Compton is going to retire after next season. And even Katie Keogh is going to step away from cross after next season. And so the the torch is being passed and, and Hans Singer really looks like the gal to take it up. So Andrew Hood, I've enjoyed talking with you, but we are going to pivot now to hear from Clara Hansinger about her experiences at the World Championships and on the World Cup circuit this year. All right. Thanks, Fred. Okay. My guest on the podcast this week, uh, it's Clara Hansinger. Clara, thanks for coming on the Velenews podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Clara, we are doing this call uh, two days after your amazing ride uh, in fourth place in Sand and Ostend. And I'm I'm curious, you know, two days later, the thrill of the race has kind of died down. What are some of the images and, and memories of that race that are still pretty vivid in your mind? Yeah, yeah, there's definitely still the processing of what went down. I'd say that just thinking about that start line again. It was kind of a unique start line because usually we start on asphalt or a concrete start line. And this one, we were actually on the, the horse race track, so on cinders. And we had, uh, had been, you know, riding up and down it to keep warm in, the, in that driving rain. And we were getting covered with mud and dirt even before the race had started. Uh, so I just remember, like, 
being on that line, looking down and seeing like myself already covered as dirt and thinking like, oh, here we go. <laughs> and I mean, the start line of a major cyclocross race has got to be one of the most nervous and anticipation filled uh, moments in the cycling space because these starts are so fast and hectic and positioning is so key. Um, what do you remember about the overall attitude or vibe or feeling that you had in that moment? It was a little bit strange this year because usually there's people on each, each side of the start line and they're like hollering and hammering the barriers. And this year it was absolutely quiet. It was almost a little bit more like, like, uh, like instead of having all that sound that kind of drown out your thoughts and your heart rate, it was like you just felt it all and you could feel the tension of the riders next to you. So, yeah, even though it was a much quieter start, it was still really high tension. That's interesting. I'm wondering, I mean, did that, like, make things um, more, like, calm and zen-like? Or was that just, did that just ratchet up the nervousness even more? Yeah, it was, it, it honestly felt like an awkward silence. Everyone was just like, let's get to this bike race. Let's do this. Let's go. Okay, there was my awkward silence. Okay, well, Claire, I mean, it was an amazing ride. I, a lot of the listeners, no doubt, watched on Flow Bikes from back home and cheered on and, and saw you, um, you know, claw your way to fourth place overall. And you had this fourth place overall in the World Cup, and this coming in your first full European campaign. Um, I mean, it's just a, you know, people were saying, oh, she's the revelation of the 2021 season. And it's true. I mean, usually cyclocross tends to be this sport where people bang their heads against the wall over years over years and make steady sort of you know steady improvement a little bit year after year because um, the nuances involved with racing in mud and sand and the starts and the positioning and everything like that is just you know there's a lot of trial and error that goes into it so here we are in February but I'm wondering if you could think back to the early part of the season when you were first heading over to Europe and really remember what was in your head, like the attitude that you were bringing into this season. You know, you've had this great success, but what was the the attitude and sort of the foundational um, mindset that you had coming into this campaign? You know, it was kind of an open season going into it, really looking at it as an opportunity to, to be one of the few U.S. riders that get out and race our bikes. Um it was just so unknown, like whether these races were going to go on, whether we'd be able to, we got on this flight thinking like, well, we really hope we make it through customs. Um, and so the make it to that start line, the first race, it was in uh, Leuven and uh, like November 12th. That just felt like such an effort itself. Um, and the like jump straight into racing was also so like, whoa, <laughs> all these other riders had, you know, two months of racing with each other, and we'd really had no experience with racing since uh, the previous season. Um, so it was definitely like it caught us kind of like on our heels. We, it took a little while to warm up and uh, start getting into the flow of it again. So you're telling me that way back in November, when you're heading over there, you you didn't necessarily have the mindset of like, I am going to crush it this year. I'm going to cream everyone. I'm going to be top five in the world. And just come out swinging and like, you know, mow everyone down. That that was not your uh, attitude coming into these first races. It was more like, let's just try to make it to a start line. Let's let's see if we can just do anything here. What was the first race then where you really felt like, oh, hey, 
you know, I actually, you know, making it to the start line may be an ambition that's a little uh, beneath me. Actually, you know, doing well and scoring good results is something that is within reason. You know, it, it took a little while. We had a couple of weekends of racing where it was like, uh, yeah, still trying to figure out the game, get that kind of aggression. Remember how the the really rail tubulars dial in those tire pressures. Um, so it wasn't until uh, it was in boom um, that I started feeling like, ah, yeah, we're getting we're getting onto form here. We're we're figuring out this again. Uh, and I ended up riding to six that day, which was a uh, it felt really good. Like after all that. All these races of being like, oh man, I just like barely touched the the top twenty. Would be like, ah, oh, okay, this is this is achievable. Let's let's figure out how we can maintain this. And you know, we hear all the time from riders who you know dip their toe in European racing about the difference in the difficulty of courses, you know, these big features that you have to navigate, and obviously the uh, aggression in the races and just the depth of the field. Um, I'm curious for you in those first few races, you know, where you really committed yourself to racing in Europe, what were the elements that you felt um, provided the steepest learning curve for you? What were the toughest parts of those early races? The high speed and the aggression of other riders. I mean, you can spend all day riding your bike and be in the best physical form possible and, you know, spend a lot of time practicing uh, skills and drills, but it's really hard that the practice getting elbowed into a barricade <laughs> uh, on your own or with like a small group or uh, riding things just kind of maxed out and cross-eyed, like potential uh, obstacles that have consequences like steep drops and uh, yeah, like just trying to get back into that is, it really takes a long time. So it wasn't just like the, hey, hey, on your left. Oh, hey, great job. <laughs> you know, you're, you're looking good today. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's like, oh, somebody's shouting behind me. I better like put my elbows out and buff up my shoulders here and not give up a line. You know, you mentioned this in, in talking about the travel over to the Netherlands, but, you know, this season has been dominated by the storyline of COVID-19. And I'm curious, you know, did you have hesitations of traveling? Like what, uh, how did you ultimately come to the decision to um, indeed proceed with this European campaign? Um, as I know, you know, riders across the world have had to make that decision this year of whether to travel or stay at home yeah there was i had kind of a bit of um uh, like uh, an ethical dissonance here just wondering like is it there's a pandemic going on is it really okay for us to take ourselves from our community and go someplace else and potentially spread virus the yeah the, like this is people are dying from this this is a serious thing so it took a lot of kind of setting and learning about the protocol at races and then setting our own protocol of this is our bubble. We're going to be extremely strict about it and we're going to make it safe for ourselves and for those around us. So we came in, we uh, did our quarantine uh, for two weeks and the, the only time we'd go out and interact was to go to the bike race and to go get groceries once or twice a week. And so honestly, it's, this has been three months of being only seeing four other people the entire day. So I feel while it, it, there is definitely this, like, is this really safe to go do? Is this okay? The way that we've done it, I think is, yeah, it was safe and 
none of us got sick. No one around us got sick. And we were able to do it well. But. You know, before you got into protocol mode and even traveled over, I mean, what ultimately pushed you over the edge to say, hey, you know what, I, I think I am going to commit myself and do this. Like, um, was it like, what were the elements, the people you were talking to and what ultimately, you know, pushed you over the edge? It was watching the racing going on in Europe and hearing the motivation from uh, those around me in terms of and those supporting us, those like the the team providing this avenue for us to get over, making it safe, making it healthy. And then all of our sponsors continuing to be like, yeah, this is a weird year. And we understand if you don't do it, but if you want to take this opportunity, here's, here's what we have for you and we're going to take care of you. Um, yeah. So it was kind of both like, uh, seeing it on the, the re- these races on the TV, like pulling me there and then a push from behind from all our support to get me over here. Uh, so if your world cup, race in Namur and Worlds was obviously high points with uh, second in Namur and fourth at Worlds. And Bohm was the turning point. What was the hardest moment? What was the race or even the moment where it was just like, oh, man, you know, I banged my head against the wall. I'm kind of over it. Yeah, there there were a few of those moments. Honestly, really not that many. But one that I can think of was at... um, the race in Antwerp, uh, I've been really like trying to get back into these starts. Like I'm not, I'm not an exceptional starter as it is, but doing it in Europe, it's just so aggressive and so fast and it's just like, it feels dangerous. And I, I'd been like thinking about these starts and like really running it over my head all week. And then we got to the start line on Saturday and I was like, okay, I got this. I got this. And then. Uh, it was a weird race because there was a clear false start. So it was like right away, like we're all confused. Some riders take off and the light's not yet green, but then everybody goes. And then there's two more crashes on the start and I end up getting pinned against a barrier and like already I'm back 30 positions and just this feeling of like, oh, this is so frustrating. And I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I rode for uh like half a lap, just like kind of being bummed at myself and then it and not riding super hard and then i was like okay we're gonna turn it into gear and i I kicked i kicked it back into speed and uh made up some spots and finished the race and was disappointed in the race but then kind of took it and was like let's figure out how to move on from this and then with that new mindset, we went into boom the next day where I was, I was recharged and re-energized and ended up having that, that kind of starting result that I felt good with. How about room for improvement? Where do you think you have the most room to uh, improve? Yeah. So as I said earlier, I'm still, I feel like some of my weaknesses are starts and just that aggression uh, and just that like getting ready to go gas out for 10 minutes straight off the line. Uh, I I definitely need to keep practicing that that getting comfortable in such discomfort. Um, and it, so I'm hoping that we'll be able to race some road this season. I raced for Tibco Silicon Valley Bank, and this will be my first year really doing a road schedule. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to go out and kind of practice in that bumping and shuffling at high speed on the road, so that I can bring it into cyclocross a little bit snappier and sharper. 
awesome. I think also maybe like um, watching the training montage from Rocky Four over and over again, like the second training montage where Rocky is in Russia and he's like running up the side of mountains and bench pressing logs and stuff like that. You know, maybe maybe that's something to help you get in that mindset, that aggression. I, I, I hear you. I mean, like. You know, if you, especially if you're like naturally kind of a mellow person, getting that like I have the tiger stuff going on before, getting ready to elbow people in the gut for every position yeah. is uh, maybe not something that comes comes totally naturally for everyone. Yeah, maybe I just need to like next time I go to the grocery store to practice chopping lines and you know getting the edge on other people, yeah. snapping out of corners. Out of the way, Grandma. Claire is coming through. <laughs> uh, well, you talked about it there. You know, I mean, we've seen cyclocross racers balance their time with road racing, balance their time with mountain bike racing. We've seen an, a few cyclocross, U.S. cyclocrossers over the year be able to really just focus on cross full time. You know, Katie Compton did that for a number of years. Jeremy Powers did that for a number of years. But by and large, most cyclocross racers, you know, they they do time in, in you know, either the mountain bike ranks or road ranks. So. It does sound like you're committed to a year of road racing. I mean, are you doing this to develop skills? Do you have ambitions on the road? Like, what do you see your um, balance and ambitions between road cycling and cyclocross racing um, becoming? Yeah, you know, I really saw it as an opportunity. I'm still pretty young into this sport. Um, And so just getting offered this opportunity to go give road racing a try and see how it balances in with my cyclocross racing uh i, I just wanted the the kind of expand my capabilities and see what what else there is out there uh, i i don't i can't say whether i'm gonna still be a purist cyclocross or slowly trend over to road but i mostly just love racing bikes and i want to try doing new things very cool well i think you know one of the really um awesome elements of, of your story Clara, is the fact that you, know, you are the generation next rider that I feel like a lot of us who've been following this sport for a long time have been, you know, keeping our eyes out for, uh, you know, the, the dominance of Katie Compton uh, at the national championships on the international stage has been so long and so thorough. And, you know, the announcement that she made this year that next year will be her final season. And then also the announcement that Katie Keogh made that sounds like next year is going to be her final full-time racing season. Um, and seeing what those two riders have done for U.S. Cross over the years and, and knowing that as they are stepping away, you are really stepping up. Um, as a fan of the sport, I, I'm, I'm glad to see that these timelines got some time to overlap. But like these timelines seem to be coming at an end and then really ramping up um, at, at a perfect time for U.S. Cross. I mean, how do you see yourself within that larger story of carrying the torch of American cyclocross racing as you know, these two torchbearers who've done such a good job of it over the last uh, years and decades are stepping away. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it feels pretty exciting. It, I mean, I remember coming into this sport and always seeing that the, uh, that the United States were ranked, they're either second or third behind uh, the Netherlands and Belgium in terms of women's racing thinking wow this is like the one place where you consistently consistently see female cyclists up there battling with the best um and so it, it feels like an honor honestly to have stepped up there uh and be able to race with them uh 
and then hopefully carry on this stride with them. I also look, you know, down at the, uh, those that are younger than me, and I'm really excited to see what they can do. Like looking at Maddie Monroe and even Lizzie Gonzalez, who's a junior racer, thinking like, dang, we're all in this together. Let's, let's keep the charge, let's keep it high. Keep the charge high. Love to hear it, Clara. Been an excellent guest. Again, open door policy. You are always welcome to uh, to come on the podcast. You know, just, just drop me a line. We'll hook up the WhatsApp call and we'll just start gabbing. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll see where I am next. <laughs>